This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Dale Cox, hello and welcome. Here's a little known fact. A Seminole was responsible for the request that brought the British military into the Gulf Coast region during the War of 1812 and set the stage for the famous Battle of New Orleans. You remember that battle, right? General Andrew Jackson and a ragtag force established impregnable defensive positions at New Orleans and whacked back the British on January 8, 1815. Someone later made a hit single about it in the 1950s, and I, I chanted that one as an army cadence decades later while marching in formation. It was a decisive tactical, operational, and strategic American victory. Tactical since the Americans held the field. Operational since they thwarted British attempts to take New Orleans and thus control the Mississippi River as part of what we might call their New Orleans battle campaign. And strategic because, well, you'll just need to keep listening. Historian Dale Cox returns to discuss how the American victory nearly led the Congress to reject the peace treaty and how that might have been a strategic disaster for the Americans. It seems odd, but the British, despite losing the battle, were secretly hoping for just that outcome, that the Congress would reject the treaty. Dale also explains how if the British had won the battle and the overall campaign, their parliament may have very well rejected the treaty or demanded substantial revisions before ratifying it and thereby ending the war. Westward expansion for the Americans may have been stopped dead in its tracks at the Mississippi had the British won that battle. As it was, the battle ensured the peace treaty would be ratified by both countries and that its provisions would prevail. The most pressing of these for our studies is that it meant the British left the region and their Native American allies behind to fend for themselves with the Americans. That spelled bad news for the Seminole. Dale Cox, welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you, always a pleasure. With a peace treaty signed between the United States and Great Britain, ostensibly ending the War of 1812, was the Battle of New Orleans in 1815 really necessary? Well, yeah, it was absolutely necessary, I think, both for the British and for the United States. Obviously, no one knew that the Treaty of Ghent had been signed. Even though it had been signed, it had not yet been ratified, so the war was still underway when the battle was fought. For the United States, it was absolutely a defense of U.S. territory, so it was necessary on both sides. Listeners may be wondering how this Battle of New Orleans had long-term ramifications for the Creek and Seminole, but that it came about because of a Seminole request. The Battle of New Orleans, and in fact the entire New Orleans campaign, resulted from a request for help from the Seminoles and kind of in a roundabout way from the Red Stick Creek. The leader of the Apalachicola River Seminoles at that time was Chief Thomas Perryman, who had fought for the British during the American Revolution. He, in fact, had the rank of colonel during the American Revolution for leading Seminole and Lower Creek warriors on the side of the British. After U.S. troops attacked Red Stick Creek warriors at the Battle of Burnt Corn Creek, he became concerned, and then he heard about the attack on Fort Mims and became very concerned that the United States would counterattack. And, of course, he knew that once that happened, 
there would be a big issue in terms of U.S. soldiers in differentiating between which Indians were neutral, which Indians were on the side of the United States, and which Indians were on the side of the British. And because he had previously been allied with the British, he sent out a written request to the governor of the Bahamas for British military support. That letter made its way to London, and that letter to London is what led to the entire Gulf Coast or New Orleans campaign by the British. What did the British hope to accomplish by attacking and taking New Orleans at that stage in the war? Well, if you look at it, by that point, the British had defeated U.S. ambitions to take Canada, which was the first big effort by the United States in the War of 1812. They had successfully blockaded the eastern coast of the United States. They had taken Washington, D.C., burned the White House and destroyed most of the National Archives, done all of that type of thing. They had raided many of the East Coast ports. And so uh, when they got this letter, they began to seriously look at the idea of what else can we do? I mean, we've pretty much done everything to them we could do. And the idea popped up to them, well, their one port on the Gulf of Mexico is New Orleans. If we could take New Orleans, we can choke off the Mississippi River. We could possibly drive up the Mississippi River and close them in from the west. Why don't we do that? And if we can take New Orleans first, we take the major port on the Gulf. We can control the future destiny of the colonies, as they called the United States then and now. And we can control the future of North America, all the way from the Gulf to Canada. And we can control the westward expansion of the United States. We take control again of the entire continent. So that's why to Great Britain, this campaign was important. They had just throttled Napoleon on the continent, so they saw a great opportunity here. For the United States, it was their last chance for a really major victory in the War of 1812. And the United States certainly made much hay over the Battle of New Orleans and the victory of the British. But how important was it that the United States had this victory at the end of the war, as it turned out to be? Otherwise, the war was going to end in a whimper for them. The Treaty of Ghent preserved everything as it was prior to the war. But you got to remember, this was a war that the United States started. They declared war on Great Britain while Great Britain was bogged down with Napoleon in Europe. And the United States saw this is our great opportunity to declare war on the master of the seas. We can defeat them. We can seize Canada. We can do all of these things. We beat them during the American Revolution. Here's our great opportunity. And it didn't go so well for the United States. They did win some victories up along the Canadian frontier, but their goal was to seize Canada. That did not happen. They won this victory at Baltimore but at the expense of the embarrassment of losing the national capital. They had suffered these defeats all up and down the eastern seaboard. It just did not go the way the United States wanted. And if it ended on this negotiated settlement with Great Britain, it would have been embarrassing to say we started this war and we ended it right where we started. For the United States, it was important to secure a signal victory at the end of the war. We've read in the history books about the British impressment of American seamen into the British Navy as being one of the causes for the United States to declare war on Great Britain. And the books always point out the irony that those British orders to do this had actually been repealed 
when the Americans made their declaration. But like the Battle of New Orleans, news of this traveled slowly. Yeah, I think that the impressment of American seamen was something that had been going on for a long, long time. It was used as one of the reasons for the war. But I think beyond that, there were a lot of politicians in Washington at that time who had greedy eyes as far as land acquisition. Not only were they interested in obtaining part of Florida, which had led to the Patriot War of 1812, in which U.S. forces backed up this pseudo-revolution in East Florida to seize East Florida, which did not go well for them. They also had their eyes on Canada. And they were using this impressment of U.S. seamen and sailors as a way to invade foreign territory in the South and Florida, foreign territory belonging to Spain, and in the North, foreign territory belonging to Great Britain and Canada. So that was what was really behind this. It was really a war of conquest. And they saw it as a great opportunity to seize Canada while Great Britain was bogged down with Napoleon in Europe. As far as at the end, yeah, the Battle of New Orleans was fought after the signing of the Treaty of Ghent, but it is a fact that that treaty was not the signing of the Treaty of Ghent didn't mean anything until it was ratified by the two parties. The war continued until the ratification of the treaty. Great Britain had not ratified that treaty, and the United States had not ratified that treaty. So as far as the irony of it, there was nothing ironic at all. The war was still underway at the time of the Battle of New Orleans. We say that was the final battle of the War of 1812, but it wasn't. Fighting continued until both countries had ratified the treaty. Even after the Battle of New Orleans, the British continued to make movements and to prepare for a major campaign in the South. The Battle of New Orleans, although a victory that preserved New Orleans for the time being, did not end British movements or the British campaign in the South. The British continued to move against Mobile. In fact, they captured Fort Boyer at the entrance to Mobile Bay. So fighting continued after the Battle of New Orleans. They invaded Cumberland Island on the Georgia coast. They took St. Mary's, and they were preparing for a movement up the Georgia coast against Savannah. They were preparing to take Mobile, and that's when the news arrived that the Treaty of Ghent had been signed. The Battle of New Orleans temporarily offered a reprieve to New Orleans, but the fighting was far from over at that point. When the news came of the signing of the Treaty of Ghent, the British still laid out plans for a major campaign in the South. Admiral Alexander Cochrane, who was commanding the supreme commander of all these movements in the Deep South, he sailed around and went up to Chesapeake Bay, where he would be closer to where Congress was meeting and where the Madison administration was to see what would happen, to see if the Battle of New Orleans would give them confidence not to ratify the treaty, because he was hoping they would not ratify the treaty. Wait, what? They lost the Battle of New Orleans, and they still wanted to go on with the war? Despite Jackson's victory, the British still had overwhelming numerical superiority and naval superiority in the South. Cochrane was hoping that they would not ratify the treaty because he had troops in place, the Navy in place, and he was prepared for a second round of fighting. The reality was we had assembled an army that could fight one British army on a very narrow front. And that is true. Jackson was able to fight the British from behind fortified lines on a very narrow front south of New Orleans. 
where the British could only attack across a very narrow front. What would have happened most likely is that the British would have moved against Mobile, would have quickly taken Mobile. Jackson was pinned down at New Orleans. The British had a second large army south of Savannah. The Americans did not have sufficient troops to fight that army. In addition, on the Apalachicola River, there was a force of around 3,500 maroon fighters who were part of the British colonial marines and maroons being self-liberated slaves combined with Redstick Creeks and Seminoles who were prepared to strike against the interior of Georgia. Combined with the British troops on the Atlantic coastline of Georgia, they would have wreaked havoc in the state of Georgia. Jackson's army was able to deal with the army in Louisiana, but could he have successfully defended both Louisiana, Mississippi, and the area above Mobile? That's a big question, with the 5,000 or so troops at his command. Even if he could, he could not send troops to defend the state of Georgia. And in Georgia, there simply were not enough troops to defend against the British Army that was prepared to move on a two-front campaign against the state of Georgia. So while Jackson did achieve a spectacular victory at New Orleans, could he have defended the entire Southeast? And therein lies the big question. There is some conjecture that after the War of 1812 and Battle of New Orleans, that the Americans and British concluded it was unwise to go to war with each other again. What say you, Dale? I don't know that they concluded a lot after the Battle of New Orleans, and I don't know that the United States concluded a lot after the Battle of New Orleans. The Battle of New Orleans was sort of an anomaly of its time period. The reason that it was an anomaly is that the British attempted a variety of attacks in New Orleans. There were three significant attacks against Jackson's lines. The British attempted a reconnaissance in force in late December. They attempted a bombardment to break the American lines in late December. And then the final attack, which is the one on January 8th that everyone remembers from the song and everything, was a three-pronged attack against Jackson's lines that they only attempted as a last resort. Those attacks were unsuccessful. Now, the reason that the January 8th attack was unsuccessful was largely because the attack west of the Mississippi that few people know about was late in stepping off. And had that attack west of the Mississippi River been able to be better coordinated, it might have been more successful and the British had driven back the American forces west of the Mississippi River, which they did, and moved up and been able to direct artillery on Jackson's lines from across the river, the British attack from the front may have succeeded. But uh, because of difficulty in coordination from across the river and things like that, it, it just not meant to be that day. And the British could not flank Jackson from his lines on the east side of the Mississippi River because of swamps and bayous and things like that. The British, however, once they realized that the attack south of New Orleans at Chalmette was not going to work, they didn't give up. They simply moved and prepared to attack via Mobile instead and then drive to the Mississippi River from north of New Orleans. They succeeded at Mobile by taking Fort Boyer, which was the guardian of Mobile Bay, 
And then their next step would have been to take the city of Mobile itself, which was lightly defended. But before they could do that, move their fleet into Mobile and take Mobile itself, that's when news came of the signing of the Treaty of Ghent. And had they been able to swing around north of New Orleans, they very well might have pinned Jackson down and cut him off from resupply north of New Orleans. The Second Battle of New Orleans, which never took place, might have been fought very differently. The British had a second strategy for how to fight Jackson based on what had happened south of New Orleans, and they learned very well from that. Then the campaign against Georgia, which they had planned, would have had Jackson pinned down at New Orleans. They would have been free to invade Georgia. We're talking what-ifs here, but the what-if very nearly came to pass. It must be said that the war didn't come at a very opportune time for the British Empire, but they played their hand very well. The British never wanted to fight the war, and the British very clearly told American diplomats they didn't want to fight the war. The British felt kind of stabbed in the back by this war. The British were busy with Napoleon. They felt like their American cousins stabbed them in the back by declaring war on them while they were fighting Napoleon. So when the United States declared war on them and attacked Canada, the British were not thrilled about all of this. When the British boxed up Napoleon and sent him into exile, they unleashed on the United States. And that's when Washington was burned and the East Coast was set aflame and the attack on the Gulf Coast took place. The British had a chance to unleash some of their fury against the United States, New Orleans aside. New Orleans gave the United States a chance to say, we've salvaged our national pride, now we'll sign this treaty and declare this thing over with. Counterfact, what if the British had prevailed at the Battle of New Orleans? The British, had they achieved success at New Orleans and had the time to swing around and move up the Mississippi River and attack Georgia, they very easily could have said, we're not going to ratify this treaty. And we're just going to say, now, if you want peace with us, you're going to have to give us all this southern territory we've conquered. That could have ended very badly for the United States at that point. Fortunately for the United States, the victory at New Orleans gave them a little bit of time to declare, we'll ratify the Treaty of Ghent. Britain thought about it. They had been bloodied at New Orleans, and they decided, we'll just go ahead and ratify this thing, get it over with. And fortunately for them, they did, because during the bit of time they had to think it over after New Orleans, Napoleon got out of the box, there was more fighting in Europe, and so forth. So, And these were Wellington's troops who had—they were worried about the French. There was, there was instability in Europe. Jackson had bloodied them enough, and people in Great Britain itself were just sick of war. They had been at war against Napoleon for a long time. They had Napoleon. They were sending him on his way to permanent exile, but a lot of people had been killed. A lot of sons and husbands had gone off to war against Napoleon. Then news arrived in Great Britain of this defeat south of New Orleans, and although it was it was a small battle compared to the Napoleonic-type battles, the people in Great Britain had had enough. Citizenry had had enough. Great Britain had spent a lot of money fighting these Napoleonic campaigns. The government wisely said, let's just not shed any more blood. Let's just end this thing. The United States was fortunate in that regard. The United States was also deeply in debt. 
and everyone decided enough is enough. Let's have peace for a while. As far as learning from Jacksonian style of fighting, the United States didn't learn a whole lot. This was the beginning of the age of Winfield Scott. And Winfield Scott fought very British Napoleonic style of fighting. If you think about the war with Mexico and even the Second Seminole War, Winfield Scott evolved the U.S. Army into a very European style of fighting. What Winfield Scott did in the Mexican-American War was he took troops in who fought Santa Ana in a very European style of fighting. He developed the U.S. Army into a very European style army. And in the aftermath, even though the British and the Americans did not become very chummy, there was a recognition from both of them that going to war against the other would be a foolhardy proposition. Yeah, that's true. In fact, New Orleans was the beginning of a different time between the United States and Great Britain. I think we realized that we had more in common than we had as enemies. It was the beginning of a change. As I said, a lot of people think of this as the last battle between the United States and Great Britain, but it was not. Fort Boyer after that, and then there was the Battle of the St. Mary's on February 24th, 1815, along the Florida-Georgia border, which was the last battle of the War of 1812. Although in some ways, the attack at Negro Fort two years later was really the last battle of the War of 1812. The United States and Great Britain remained a little edgy with each other for some years afterward. In time, they did become friends, and that, of course, led to the great alliances of World War I and World War II. They had a lot in common afterwards. Colonel Nichols, who had built those forts on the Apalachicola River and, of course, was a great friend to the Seminole people, we leading up to the First Seminole War, was prominent in the interdiction of the slave trade for the rest of his career after the War of 1812. He worked at that, as did the United States Navy in the years after the War of 1812. There were many commonalities that developed between the British Navy and the U.S. Navy after the War of 1812. There was more in common. Great Britain did still remain a great world power for another century and a half after the War of 1812. Spain was a fading power by that time. The United States gained possession of Florida, eventually of Texas. Great Britain really did not have other territorial interests of a large scale in the West, although it did retain possession of Canada and it had interests in the Caribbean. The United States Navy and the British Navy cooperated in the interdiction of the slave trade, but also in the suppression of piracy. Those were areas where we cooperated. As the United States Navy grew, our navies became forces to be reckoned with around the world, especially in the suppression of piracy and in the protection of our merchant fleets around the world. And the United States was a growing merchant power around the world. Great Britain was already a merchant power around the world. And so the U.S. and the British navies ruled the seas for another 150 years. Great Britain maintained their large navy after the war. What actions for its military did the United States take? We immediately downsized the U.S. Army especially, and the Navy as well, but we realized a couple of things. One, there was a recognition that we needed a professional military, and Andrew Jackson had a lot to do with that. Jackson, who was initially a big supporter of the militia, became a big believer in the regular U.S. Army. Jackson began his career as a militia general 
became, during the War of 1812, a general in the regular army. Because of what he saw in dealing with the militia during the War of 1812, became a believer in regular army regiments. He became a supporter of the regular army. As he became president, he remained a supporter of the regular army. Jackson supported the regular army. Also, after the War of 1812, we realized what our handful of regular Navy frigates were able to do against the British Navy and in on the high seas. And so we became more involved in supporting the regular Navy. We realized that Thomas Jefferson's idea of having these coastal troll gunboats was not a great idea. It did not work in fighting the British. We became more involved, and it took decades to do it, but we became more involved in the idea of having a powerful regular Navy. We realized that our oversized frigate had performed well against the British Navy frigates and that we needed a regular Navy. We needed a regular Army, and we needed a regular Navy if we were going to be a real powerful country, and that to protect our liberty, we needed to be a powerful country. Long before Teddy Roosevelt came along, the idea of speaking softly and carry a big stick came along. Andrew Jackson was a proponent of that. Other politicians of his era were proponents of that. Jefferson's day, in terms of the military, came and went. You had men like Jackson, but you also had men like Winfield Scott, who were proponents of that. Those secretaries of the Navy of the first half of the 19th century were proponents of that. Then when the American Civil War came along, that was the end of any idea that the militia could protect our freedom, that we had to have a regular army and we had to have a regular navy. And then Roosevelt, of course, came along at the end of the 19th century, the early 20th century. And by World War One, any idea of, of temporary force application was over. And But the War of 1812 gave the birth of the U.S. military as we know it today. Besides the idea of a more robust navy, the United States also concentrated on coastal fortifications down the eastern seaboard and then, of course, in the Gulf of Mexico. And these fortifications continued into the newly acquired territory of Florida. Yeah, that's true. If you look at Florida and you look at the War of 1812, once the United States gained possession of Florida, immediately they set about the idea of fortifying Florida. Now, there was already a superior fortification for that day at St. Augustine in the Castillo de San Marcos, which was the reason why the 1812 invasion of Florida, the Patriot War, failed. Neither the United States military nor the Patriots could take St. Augustine, the same thing that had happened all the way since Oglethorpe's day. As soon as the United States gained possession of Florida, they immediately started fortifying everything from the Dry Tortugas to Key West to Pensacola Bay to Fernandina. But the same thing had happened in New Orleans. Even after the Battle of New Orleans, the British Navy still tried to get up the Mississippi River, and it was Fort St. Philip south of New Orleans that prevented them from getting up the Mississippi River. Had those British warships been able to pass Fort St. Philip, they still could have gotten up to New Orleans and sailed right past Jackson's army. They were unable to do so. And it proved that those coastal fortifications were vital. All up and down the East Coast and all along the Gulf Coast, they started building these powerful masonry forts where Fort Boyer had stood, Fort Morgan went up. Over on 
on Dolphin Island at the mouth of Mobile Bay. Fort Gaines went up, of course, named after Edmund Pendleton Gaines, who was a noteworthy figure of the Seminole Wars and the War of 1812. You had all along the Louisiana coast, these forts went up, Fortress Monroe and Fort Sumter, of course, and Fort Moultrie and all the way up to Maine, they went up. And this was a result of the War of 1812. They knew that these smaller forts that had stood during the War of 1812 had succeeded to some degree in in defending places like Norfolk, but they needed more of them. They knew that Fort McHenry from the famed Star-Spangled Banner song had defended Baltimore. This was a turning tide for American thoughts about military power. We began building these things all over the place, and many of them were never finished by the time the Civil War came along and antiquated them with the advent of rifled artillery. Some would say the coastal fortifications were a bust because they were never used to fire in anger, except during the Civil War. They prevented wars. If you look at, by building these, we probably prevented wars. We probably prevented Mexico from attempts against American ports. Mexico was not happy with the United States after the Texas Revolution. And we very well may have prevented Mexican fleets from attacking Louisiana after the Texas Revolution. We may have prevented other countries from attacking U.S. harbors in the South. We forget about that, what we call pirates, but what some of the South American countries call privateer fleets. We're very anxious to pluck off some harbors in the South. We forget that what happened during the Civil War, that a lot of these forts were attacked that more of harbors in the north and in the south would have been attacked had these forts not stood there. You can think what the ships like the CSS Florida or the CSS Alabama could have done against Baltimore or Washington, D.C. had these forts not stood. Dale, talk about the Seminoles and their political alliances during this period. Yeah, the Seminoles were allied with the British during the War of 1812, particularly in 1814 and early part of 1815. They were part of the organization that the British established in Pensacola at Prospect Bluff and at Second Fort that we call today Nichols Outpost, but that was a full-fledged fort on the Apalachicola River where Chattahoochee, Florida, stands today. There were about 1,000 Seminoles and about 2,500 Redstick Creek warriors who were allied with the British, so about 3,500 Seminole and Redstick Creek fighters who were allied with the British during the war. They took part in raids against the frontier of Georgia. They took part in fighting in the southern part of Alabama, which was then part of the Mississippi Territory. They took part in the attack on Fort Boyer. They took part in fighting near Mobile, some raids and some small fights there and in Georgia. There were also Seminoles and Red State Creeks in the Battle of New Orleans or observing the Battle of New Orleans. They observed the British attack that resulted in the sinking of the USS Carolina immediately before the January 8th attack on New Orleans. In fact, the Red Stick Prophet Josiah Francis and Peter McQueen and Thomas Perryman, who I mentioned, who was the principal chief or primary chief of the Apalachicola River Seminoles, was on hand. They stood on the banks of the Mississippi River and watched the British bombardment of USS Carolina during the two-and-a-half-week New Orleans campaign. They were there, the U.S. artillery fire most likely, resulted in the burning of several of of the huts in which the British were using to shelter them during the fighting in front of New Orleans. Their families went with them. 
there are several British officers who wrote descriptions of them observing the Battle of New Orleans all the way up through January 8th. One of the accounts describes the Prophet Francis watching the attack against Jackson's lines on January 8th, 1815, and describes how despondent and depressed he was as he watched the British being mowed down during their final assault on Jackson's lines. Native Americans didn't do so well themselves at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. Of course, at Horseshoe Bend, the Red Stick Creeks, about 800 of them were killed. They were behind the fortifications at Horseshoe Bend. Jackson was able to execute a flank maneuver and send a portion of his force behind them to cross the Tallapoosa River and attack them from behind. It resulted in the defeat of the Red Sticks at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, and about 800 of the Red Sticks were killed on the battleground at Horseshoe Bend. At the Battle of New Orleans, which actually was a two-and-a-half-week-long series of engagements as opposed to a one-day battle like most people think, they were able to observe this fighting for two-and-a-half weeks, and on the final day of the battle, they saw these British troops just mowed down by the hundreds in the final attack on Jackson's lines. And the Prophet Francis, who was the leader of the Red Stick movement that ended in that slaughter at Horseshoe Bend had watched that morning with great hope that the British were going to break through Jackson's lines and the British were going to help him and the Red Stick reclaim the land they had lost to Jackson at the Treaty of Fort Jackson, uh, 22 million acres of Creek and Native American land that had been lost to the United States. And his dream was that when the British broke through, that the Creeks would be able to reclaim their lost lands, and he and the Red Sticks would be able to come back from the land they had lost to the United States. And the Seminoles would regain land in that, too, because they had lost land in the Treaty of Fort Jackson as well. When he saw the British slaughtered before Jackson's lines at New Orleans, he knew that the hope was lost. British officers who saw him that day described how he was despondent. He knew that unless there was a miracle after that, that the hope of the Red Stick movement was lost that day when the British Army was defeated in front of New Orleans. And he would eventually regain some optimism, but that day was a day of great despondency for the prophet. He and the other Seminoles and Creek chiefs and warriors who were there and their families went into Great Depression as they saw those British soldiers being slaughtered that day. For the leadership of the Seminole and the Red State Creek people, it was not just for the British, but for them, it was a day of great defeat. How long until the British evacuated their outposts? They remained until June, or right at the end of May, 1815, which is well after the ratification of the Treaty of Ghent. And the United States was getting concerned by the time they left, so they remained around for about six months or five or six months after the ratification of the treaty. When they left, they left Prospect Bluff in the hands of the Seminoles and in the hands of one of the companies of Colonial Marines or Maroons, and the equipment at Prospect Bluff based on the British reports. Now, this is not always what historians tell you, but according to the British reports and the British letters that were written at the time by Admiral Cochrane and by Colonel Nichols and others, the equipment at Prospect Bluff and the fort there was left in the hands of the Seminoles. There was about one company's worth of the Maroons who remained there. They were staying until a British transport could be sent back to evacuate them to Trinidad. That did not go quickly. 
they knew it was probably going to take about a year or longer for that to happen. But the equipment, the supplies there, the cannon, the gunpowder, the muskets, all of that stuff belonged to the Seminoles and had been turned over to the Seminoles and the Red Stick Creeks by the British. The British are very clear about that in all of their reports and their letters. In fact, the British very clearly state that the fort was built to protect their Native American allies. There are a number of historians who have written about this fort who misunderstand its purpose. It was in very clear written language as written by the British officers and heads of this Gulf of Mexico campaign. It was a Native American fort, and it was turned over to the Native Americans with a detachment of Maroon fighters and their families who were left there. The reason that they remained behind is because there was simply not enough room on the transports that were evacuating Prospect Bluff for them to go. The ones who remained behind, for the most part, had come from Spanish territory, and there was not enough room for them to own these transports that were leaving. Nichols and the Maroons who were remaining behind believed that they were safe from the United States because they, by and large, had not come from the United States. They had come from Spanish Florida. The British had paid their quote-unquote owners in British silver, the value that their former owners claimed for them. And so no one had a claim, either legally or morally, against them. Neither the British nor the Maroons themselves believed that they were in danger from anyone. And they were there. They were helping to protect all of this war material that was in this fort. And they did not believe that they were in danger of U.S. attack. The United States felt that they were a danger to the chattel slave system in the South because they felt that free African people of African descent this close to the U.S. border was a threat to the slave system in the southern states. But the United States did not know that all of this war material in this fort belonged to the Seminole Indians, or they probably would have attacked sooner than they did. They attacked about one year after the British left. And so what of the charge that the British abandoned their allies? It's not really true. The British left behind one of their officers, Lieutenant William Hambly, in charge of the fort. And Hambly had been an officer in the Colonial Marines. He was a lieutenant under Colonel Nichols. He had been both an officer and an interpreter for Nichols during the war. And Hambly remained in command at the post. Hambly was someone who lived on the Apalachicola River before the war, when Nichols arrived, he gave him a commission in the Colonial Marines. He also used him as his interpreter there at Prospect Bluff. Now, Nichols left. He took with him the Prophet Josiah Francis back to Great Britain, and he took with him a, or a proposed treaty that the Seminole and, and the Redstick Creeks had signed. This proposed treaty called for basically a continued partnership between Great Britain, the Seminoles, the Lower Creeks, the Uchi, and the Red Stick Creeks. This was the first ever signed document that created an alliance between all of these various groups that became the Seminole Tribe of Florida, the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, as we know it today, and the Miccosukee Tribe of Florida as we know it today. This was the first time they had ever signed a mutual defense agreement. 
Nichols had signed this with them at the upper fort or the fort at what is today Chattahoochee, Florida. Nichols took this. The Prophet Francis went as their designated emissary to Great Britain. They went back and they sought a meeting with the British government. What they wanted was an agreement from Great Britain that they would agree not to attack or be at war with the United States if Great Britain would agree to open kind of a trading agreement with them to agree to a free port in their territory, primarily at the mouth of the Apalachicola River. Great Britain thought about it. They apparently did have some discussions about it, but Great Britain was not willing to risk another war with the United States at that time. When it all ended, they sent the prophet home without a signed agreement on the British side. So the prophet returned to Florida in early 1817 without a signed agreement from Great Britain. But by that time, the United States had attacked and destroyed the fort at Prospect Bluff, or as many people call it, the Negro Fort. The Native Americans in Florida did not know whether or not their proposed treaty had been signed by Great Britain until that time. The United States knew that there was a proposed treaty, but they attacked Prospect Bluff without knowing what the end result of that proposed agreement was. It was a proposed treaty from a combined, I guess, consortium, you could say, or a combined alliance of Seminole, Miccosukee, Alachaway, Seminole, Uchi, Lower Creek, and Red Stick Creek between them and Great Britain. It was not really a defense agreement between them and Great Britain. It was a mutual defense agreement between them, but it included an alliance with Great Britain that would consist of a trading agreement with Great Britain, where Great Britain would send an agent to them and agree to maintain an open port with them and a a no-duties trade agreement between them and Great Britain, whereby they could trade with the Bahamas. The Americans didn't want them trading with anybody but the Americans. Well, they were not on American soil, you got to remember. They were loosely under Spanish dominion, but they were on their own soil at that time. Spain only considered its territory to go as far inland as the tidal influence of the rivers. They had repealed their agreement with the Forbes Company, So they were saying, we're asking for an open trade agreement with the Bahamas between ourselves as an independent people, which the United States today regards the Seminole people as an independent entity and the Muscogee Creek people as an independent entity. The Supreme Court just upheld that. And they were asking for the right for free trade with Great Britain via a free port in their own territory. The United States had not yet gained possession of Florida. When the United States attacked the fort at Prospect Bluff, which according to the British was given to the Native Americans, they were attacking a fort that belonged to the Seminoles and the Red Stick Creeks. As we move on up to the first Seminole War, which Jackson captured Amherstger and Arbuthnot, they were Bahamian citizens. They were captured in Spanish Florida. Arkansas was captured in a Spanish fort. Great Britain decided not to go to war, although they did raise a diplomatic objection to it to the United States. 
I think Great Britain took the attitude that the issue of whether war was going to be declared with the United States was a Spanish matter. They raised a diplomatic objection, but because Arbuthnot was captured under the flag of Spain, he was under the protection of the Spanish government at the time he was captured. They decided to let Spain decide whether to go to war, and Spain decided not to. I think that Great Britain, again, decided that they could have used them as an excuse to go to war. I think there was a lot of diplomatic negotiation that went on using John Quincy Adams as a negotiator. Spain finally reached an agreement with him that we will give you Florida as long as you promise that you will leave Texas alone which the United States agreed to in the ultimate treaty that surrendered Florida to the United States. In the end, we know how that worked out. Facing the Florida frontier, the Americans built three forts in Georgia. Tell us about those. What was their purpose? Fort Scott was the most significant of these three forts. Fort Scott was the U.S. command post for a time for the Army in the South. Fort Scott was built originally as Camp Crawford, It was located just up the Flint River from where the Flint and Chattahoochee Rivers come together on the border with Spanish Florida. Fort Scott was established as the headquarters for the U.S. movement against the fort at Prospect Bluff. After that campaign, it was abandoned temporarily, but then reoccupied, and it was used as the U.S. headquarters for the Jackson's campaign during the First Seminole War. It was from where Jackson marched into Spanish Florida during the First Seminole War. It was the primary point through which all of the U.S. troops moving into Spanish Florida during that war moved through Fort Scott. It was the post to which supplies were moving through and all of that. Fort Hughes, which is the second fort that the book is about, was a subsidiary fort built during the First Seminole War, during the Fowltown Expedition. After the Battle of Fowltown, when the U.S. troops had to fall back to the Flint River, they built Fort Hughes as a defensive point, and it was attacked in a multi-day battle during the First Seminole War. And then, after the First Seminole War, Fort Scott remained a heavily defended fort right on the Spanish border. It's just a few miles north of the Florida border. They kept as many as 860 soldiers there, which was a lot for the army in that time period. And it basically was a warning to Spain after this treaty was signed, agreeing to transfer Florida to the United States. And that warning was, don't have second thoughts. Fort Scott was the command post for Fort St. Mark's, for Fort Gadsden, for all of the other forts along the Alabama and Georgia border with Spain and with Spanish Florida. It was, we've got troops on your border. We've got all of these soldiers, the 4th and 7th Infantry at Fort Scott, and all of these other forts where there are smaller commands at Fernandina, on the St. Mary's, over here on the Conecuh River, north of Pensacola. Don't think twice because we've got the Army here, Jackson's in Tennessee, just waiting. And if we need to invade, we will invade. We've got the troops. We're ready to move. It was a warning to Spain. The third of the posts mentioned was Camp Recovery, which was a hospital post, because these forts were not particularly healthy place for soldiers to be. Malaria and yellow fever ravaged these posts. Camp Recovery was a hospital camp near Fort Scott that was built when, at one point of the 780 soldiers at Fort Scott, 769 were sick with fever. You had only, what, 11 able-bodied soldiers out of 780 at this fort. 
and they built this hospital camp high on a hill to try to get them out of the bad air or malair as malaria is named for. So it was a hospital camp where a number of U.S. soldiers were sick and died. But that's the story of what this paper and book are about, is the story of this fort from the time it was built as a command post for the expedition against Prospect Bluff all the way up until Spain finally surrendered Florida to the United States. How it was kept there, just as this ominous warning to Spain, don't back off of your plan that you've agreed to with us, that if you change your mind, we have the will and we have the power, we will take Florida. This fort was built for aggressive purposes. It was built as uh, the command post for an operation into Spanish and Native American Florida to destroy the fort at Prospect Bluff. Then it was it served a defensive purpose for a time leading up to the First Seminole War. And then it again served an aggressive purpose as the base for Jackson's operations during the First Seminole War, or the first phase of the four decade-long Seminole Wars. And then it again served an aggressive purpose, which was this fort is there, all of its subsidiary forts all along this border, which stretches for hundreds of miles, are there just as a warning to you that if the word is given, these soldiers are ready to step off in a, with a day's notice. They will invade Florida and they will take it. If Spain did, did not have the power or particularly the will to stop the Seminoles if they harassed or invaded Georgia or subsequently Alabama. It was there to guard the southern border and its subsidiary posts were there to defend against the Seminole and the Red Sticks, particularly during the first phase of the First Seminole War. Once the United States attacked Fowltown, then it was all hands on deck because they realized they had kicked a hornet's nest. They attacked Fowltown under orders from John C. Calhoun to bring Niamatla back to Fort Scott and hold him as a hostage until all of the Seminoles evacuated the territory that had been ceded at the Treaty of Fort Jackson. Well, the Seminoles weren't party to the Treaty of Fort Jackson and didn't see why they should have to leave those lands. But when the United States attacked Fowltown, the Seminoles were not happy about it. Suddenly, the United States realized that with 600 or so soldiers of Fort Scott, they had kicked a hornet's nest of about 3,500 warriors down in the Florida borderlands and did not have enough troops to deal with them. And the next thing they knew, Lieutenant Scott's boat coming up the river had been attacked. And then suddenly Fort Scott itself was attacked, and suddenly there were warriors loose all along the frontier in Alabama and Georgia and northwest Florida. Attacks were being made as far north as the settled areas of Alabama and the settled areas of Florida. They had their hands full. That's why Fort Scott suddenly was a key defensive point. It took the United States a good seven months to get an offensive campaign together, to get Andrew Jackson down to the frontier, to get enough troops down to the frontier to invade Spanish Florida and carry the fight to the Seminoles and the Red State Creeks. Prior to that, the Seminoles and the Red State Creeks were carrying the fight to the United States. There was fighting far inland as 100, 150 miles into Georgia and Alabama prior to that. So the Americans didn't need actual war to coerce or convince the Spanish to relinquish their claims to Florida. No, it was a negotiated settlement because the United States said, unless you can put a sufficient military force 
in Florida to restrain the Seminoles and the Red Stick Creeks, you need to turn it over to us. Spain realized that they had to put that size of military force into Florida would require thousands and thousands of troops, and Spain could not afford to do that. As the United States found out, it could not really afford to do that either. It took it 40 years to do that. Spain finally reached an agreement with the United States that if you will pay off our claims, if you'll pay off the claims from the First Seminole War, and if you will agree to leave Texas alone, then fine. Then that was the agreement the United States and Spain came to. As we wrap up, let's get back to the Battle of New Orleans and the War of 1812. What do you think would have been the outcome had the British defeated the Americans at the Battle of New Orleans? I think the British would have immediately moved up the Mississippi River. They would have seized more and more territory. They would have immediately moved on Mobile. They would have most likely captured Mobile because had they broken through on January the 8th, they would have split Jackson's army. Jackson's army would have been destroyed. They would have immediately seized Mobile. Then Nichols and uh, at least one regiment of British troops would have returned to the Apalachicola within a matter of, of two weeks. They would have launched their inland invasion against the frontier of Georgia at the same time that Admiral Coburn moved up the Georgia coast. There would not have been sufficient troops in Georgia to stop him. Savannah would have likely fallen. He would have been looking at a situation where Louisiana would have fallen, Mississippi would have fallen, what we know today as Alabama would have fallen, Georgia would have fallen. Then Great Britain would have been in a position of deciding whether or not to ratify the Treaty of Ghent. And then the United States would have quickly ratified the Treaty of Ghent, and then it would have been of Great Britain to say whether or not they wanted to return all that territory to the United States or not. Great Britain could have said, okay, yes, we'll return it or not. But at the minimum, at a minimum, Great Britain's version of the Treaty of Ghent would have been ratified, which would have been all of the land seized under the Treaty of Fort Jackson would have been returned to the Native Americans, which means that the 22 million acres that we know today as the state of Alabama and the southern half of the state of Georgia would have been returned to the Creeks and the Seminoles. The state of Alabama would have been returned to the Creeks, and the southern half of the state of Georgia would have been returned to the Seminoles. I think that the United States had a very tenuous hold on that, and the tenuous hold was Andrew Jackson. And if Jackson's army, including his Tennessee and Kentucky militia, were defeated at New Orleans, there would have been no Tennessee and Kentucky militia. Hold 22 million acres, the 7th and 44th regiments of regular troops would have been gone. I think America did dodge a bullet by being victorious at New Orleans, but I think America dodged a bigger bullet by the arrival of the signed Treaty of Ghent immediately after the Battle of New Orleans, actually immediately after the battle at Fort Boyer, the Second Battle of Fort Boyer, because the British did not give up after New Orleans. They immediately turned around and attacked Fort Boyer. They won the Battle of Fort Boyer immediately after the Battle of New Orleans in February 1815. It was after that battle that the Treaty of Ghent arrived. The British held up moving on with an immediate attack on Mobile after the treaty arrived. Had the treaty not arrived when it did, they would have immediately sailed up Mobile Bay, taken Mobile. Jackson was still in position at New Orleans when the British won the Battle of Fort Boyer. 
And it was the arrival of the Treaty of Ghent at that point that stopped them from taking Mobile. And that was a fortuitous moment for the United States because Jackson was still in position south of New Orleans when the British won the Battle of Fort Boyer. The arrival of the Treaty of Ghent after the Battle of Fort Boyer was the moment that really saved the United States as we know it today. And by that time, Nichols was back on the Apalachicola River and ready to invade the state of Georgia. He, at the same time, received the Treaty of Ghent, and that's what stopped him from Dale Cox, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us again for the Seminole Wars Authority. Absolutely. I'll talk to you soon. This podcast is copyright 2023. The Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.